Let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing upon the message. Dear Lord, we thank you for the precious gift that you've given us, your word. And Lord, I thank you for each individual who is here this morning. Lord, I pray that each one of us has turned from our sin and have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as such, we are your blood-bought children, and you are our faithful Father. And we thank you for our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, as that last song sung. He is ever true, Lord. We don't need to guess at whether or not he's going to be faithful to his promises. We don't need to worry about whether or not he will be strong enough to accomplish what he's promised. Lord, we know that he is the God-man. He's God made flesh who sacrificed himself for us, lived the righteous life in our place that we could not live, died the atoning death in our place, paying a debt that we could never pay, and he rose in a glorious resurrection from the grave so that we who have trusted in him will follow him. He will bring us to himself. Um, we thank you for these great promises. We thank you for our strong Savior. And Lord, we desire, as we've sung, we desire to live for him. We want to honor him with our lives. We know that he died for us so that we could live, and we who live are to live not for ourselves, but for him. Lord, help us to live for him more and more faithfully, we pray. And may you accomplish that even more just as we come to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can open back up to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we'll be this morning. And we're going to be looking at four verses, verses 14 through 17. So Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 17. It says, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. He says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, in the 1980s, one of the most popular games in the country was the board game Trivial Pursuit. I'm sure many of you have played it, but for those who have not, it's a trivia game where you're asked random questions that cover a broad range of subjects. And many of these questions concern things that are quite trivial, hence the name, Trivial Pursuit. Here's one such question I found. It says, which forward-thinking Russian ruler taxed any citizen with a beard because being clean-shaven was all the rage in Europe in 1698. Now, I won't give you the answer. I'll leave that question burning in your minds. You'll have to look it up. But knowing the answer to that question might help you win a board game 
but obviously it's not going to get you very far in life because it's trivial. Who really cares who did that? It's unimportant. You could spend your whole life pursuing these kinds of trivial facts and become the greatest trivial pursuit player to ever play the game in the history of board games, but that will have been a life wasted because you spent it pursuing trivial things. Today we are gathered together as the body of Christ, the church. And the word church is the Greek word ekklesia, and it means assembly or congregation. It refers to a people who are called out in order to gather together. Assembly, congregation. And why is it that we, the church, gather together? What's the purpose for which we have been called out this morning to inhabit this same space? Well, it's to worship God. And it's to build up one another in the faith, to help one another get across the finish line of this lifelong race of faith. That's why we're here. And the Bible, when the Bible speaks of this thing called church, the Bible speaks of it as being essential to the life of the believer. It's not a throwaway. It's not an option. It's not an add-on. It's essential. But for many professing believers, church is not essential. Rather, it is trivial. To gather with the body of Christ, to many, is a trivial pursuit. It's of little worth. It's unimportant. And it's certainly not worth risking your life over. But there are believers around the world, just like this Hebrew church, who because of persecution are risking life, limb, and property every single week to come together to worship Christ and to encourage one another. And that is a stark contrast to the American church. I think you would agree with that. To many professing believers in America, the body of Christ is little more than a social club or a spectator sport. And they have drastically misunderstood the central role in our sanctification that gathering together plays. And just because you do happen to show up Sunday to Sunday, that doesn't mean that you fully get this. We can come just out of habit. It can be just some rote thing. We roll out of bed and we're programmed just to show up and we don't realize how important this time together is on a Sunday morning when we get together or any time we get together. And this passage that we're looking at this morning commands us to do something that can only be fully obeyed in the context of the local assembly, the church. It's something that is essential for our perseverance in the faith. Again, that's what this book of Hebrews is all about, persevering in the faith. And verses 14 through 17 really flow out of verses 12 and 13. Remember what those two verses said. They said we are to strengthen one another for this race of faith. And verses 14 through 17 tell us how to strengthen one another. So the first point of this message is found in verse 14, and it's this. Pursue peace and holiness. Pursue peace and holiness. Verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. 
So what are we commanded to do? We are commanded to pursue peace and holiness. And far from being a trivial pursuit, this pursuit is inseparably connected with our salvation, as we are going to see. And I want us to focus in on that first word, pursue. That's a strong word. Oftentimes, this word is translated as persecute whenever unbelievers are pursuing believers with the intent to harm them. Persecute. But obviously, this context, it's a more positive type of word. It's, it's a more positive context in which it is being used. In this context, it means to zealously chase after something that you consider to be important. So what are we first commanded to zealously chase after? Peace. Yes, peace. And this is not a throwaway command. A lot of times we read commands like this, be at peace with all men, as far as depends on you. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, hear this verse, pursue peace, and we can just read over it. It barely registers on our brains. It sounds so innocuous, so inconsequential. But we need to pause and consider the implications of this command, pursue peace. So let's, let's look at it carefully. What does he say? Pursue peace with all, with everyone, with everyone. It does not matter who they are. It does not matter if their personality is pleasing to you or if their personality rubs you the wrong way. We all have those relationships with people who... I love them, but it just rubs me wrong. We're to pursue peace with that person, too, with all. And notice we are to pursue peace. We're to chase after peace, meaning peace does not just happen. It doesn't just happen. We are sinners, and as sinners, we're more, we're more prone to fight and kill than we are to be at peace with one another. It doesn't take much to set us off against each other. It doesn't come naturally. And this peace, it's not simply the absence of conflict. You tolerating being in the same room with someone is not the same thing as pursuing peace. To have peace with others is to have a wholeness in your relationship with them. A wholeness. And so if you've sinned against someone or they've sinned against you, that wholeness that peace, for the moment, has been lost, and you need to pursue it. You need to chase it. You need to go and get it back, as far as it depends upon you. We're to pursue peace with all men. And it's not just our relationships with other people. We should also be pursuing peace between people and God, because that's the greatest need we have, to be at peace with God, reconciled to God. And that involves ministering the gospel of peace to people. And so when we are encountering an unbeliever and, we, and we've prayed for an opportunity to reach out to them with the gospel and we make the most of it, we need to bring them the gospel of peace. We need to pursue their peace with God, speaking of what Christ has done for them. And it also involves other believers when they have sinned their intimacy with their God has been interrupted. They haven't lost the relationship, but that close fellowship is no longer there. 
The peace has been affected, and we need to remind them of the gospel, that Christ has redeemed you from sin. You are not to remain in your sin. You are to turn from it and get back on the path. And his forgiveness is there so that you can get back on the path. We need to bring the gospel continually to each other. So we're to pursue peace. But what else are we to pursue, to zealously chase after? It says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or the holiness. We are to pursue holiness. This carries the idea of being set apart unto God. Now the Bible often speaks of a couple of different kinds of sanctification or holiness. On the one hand, the Bible speaks of positional sanctification. That is when the moment you're born again, the moment you have put your faith and trust in Christ, God has changed your position before him. No longer are you a citizen of the kingdom of Satan. Now you are a citizen of the kingdom of God's beloved son. Your position has changed permanently, immediately. But on the other hand, there's a different kind of sanctification the Bible talks about, and that is progressive sanctification. This is more of a process that takes place over the course of your life where you become more and more like Christ. You are more and more set apart to the service of God. We see this kind of sanctification in verse 10 of this chapter where it says that God disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. God disciplines us throughout our life to make us more and more sanctified, more and more holy. So we have a decision to make when we come to this verse 14. Pursue holiness. What kind of holiness, what kind of sanctification are we being instructed to pursue here? Well, remember, the preacher is writing to believers. So that first kind of sanctification, positional sanctification, that's already happened to them. They already possess that. They don't need to pursue it. They have it. But what they do need to pursue, as every believer needs to pursue this side of heaven, is that progressive sanctification. We need to pursue becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That is what they are being commanded to pursue. And like with peace, holiness does not come naturally. You don't just fall into holiness. You can't just sit on your couch and act like that couch is an oven just baking you, making you more and more holy. No, holiness is something you have to zealously and doggedly pursue. You have to fight for it. And we all know the means that God has given us, that his spirit uses within us to make us more like Christ. What are some of those things? Anybody have any idea? What are things that God has commanded us to do to make us more like his son? What's that? Yeah, read his word. What else? Pray. Yes. Anything else? Obey. Yeah, yeah. How about gathering together as the body of Christ as well? Watching baptisms, taking part in the Lord's Supper, hearing the preaching of the word, encouraging one another with the gospel. Those are all things that the Spirit uses to progressively make us more and more holy. 
That's what we're to pursue. And how important is it that we pursue this? What does verse 14 say? Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now that sounds pretty, pretty important, doesn't it? Without holiness, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. Without holiness, you will not experience final salvation. Without holiness, you will not be able to stand in the judgment. Rather, you will experience hell. And this is not something that the preacher has just made up. He's not teaching something different than what Christ taught, than what the other apostles taught. For example, we saw this in Galatians 5. Remember Paul, he gave that long list of sins. And what did he say? What did he warn the Galatians? He said, those who practice such things will not, what? Inherit the kingdom of God. So this is not a trivial pursuit. Now when we read things like this, it's easy for us to fall into misunderstanding. Is the preacher saying that God's salvation of us is based on our own personal holiness or our own good works? No, he's not saying that. We know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith through which we are saved, that faith that God gifts to us, is a faith that produces holy living. So if our lives are not characterized by growing in holiness, what does that say about our faith? It says we don't have faith. Not the kind of faith that God gives. Because God only gives faith that is alive, that works, that desires him. And without faith, it's impossible to what? To please God. So we are to pursue peace and holiness. But that's a little vague. How do we do that? How do we do that? That brings us to our second point. How to pursue peace and holiness. We see this in verses 15 through 16. We've already mentioned I've already mentioned some ways that we can pursue this, but the preacher has something very specific in mind because this pursuit is not simply an individual thing. This pursuit is to be taken place uh, by the whole body. The whole church is to be pursuing these things together. So the preacher has very much a corporate pursuit in mind. This is something we are pursuing together. And in verses 15 through 16, he tells us how to do that. He says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. He says, See to it. That's, that's one word in the Greek. It's episkopeo. You can write that down and stick it on your refrigerator. <laughs> episkopeo. And it's used actually in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, where Peter is speaking to elders, and he's telling them what their responsibility is. He says to them, Shepherd the flock of God among you, 
exercising oversight. And that, that phrase, exercising oversight, that's episcopeo. It's the same word, exercising oversight. And there's a noun form. I'm testing your grammar knowledge. There's a noun form of this word, episkopos. Sounds like the Episcopal Church, episkopos. And Peter, uh, the Apostle Paul uses this in describing uh, the office of the elder. An elder, a pastor, is also called an overseer. An overseer. You see that in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. It's the same, same word group as episcopeo. So what does this tell us? Because the preacher is not just speaking to pastors here. He's speaking to the whole church body. He's saying, see to it. Be on the alert. Watch over each other carefully. This tells us that the watchful care over the church is not something that only the elders have the responsibility of doing. Now, it's true that when it comes to elders or pastors in the church, this responsibility does fall most heavily upon them. And it takes on a more authoritative characteristic in the case of pastors and elders. But this watchful care is a responsibility of every single member of Christ's church. It is something that each one of us, each one of you, are going to have to give an account to God for as to whether or not you exercised careful watch over your brothers and your sisters. We are to look after one another. And that's not something we can do if we're apart from each other, if we're not in contact with one another. You can't do this in a vacuum. So we need to see to it And there are three things that we need to see to, three things that we need to be watchful about regarding the church body. What's the first thing? He says in verse 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. The preacher here, he's he's echoing something he's already said multiple times throughout this letter. He's echoing this idea that we need to help one another persevere in faith. When he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, it's just another way of saying that we need to see to it that each one of us crosses that finish line of this race of faith. For example, if you go back to chapter 3 and verse 12, we see the same kind of exhortation. 3 verse 12, he says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says a similar thing in chapter 10. In verse 24, When he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are to help one another persevere in faith. 
And we cannot do it alone. We have to look out for one another. We have to get in each other's business. I don't know about you, but I'm typically my personality is I like to withdraw. I like to just be to myself. And the Bible is saying, no, you can't live like that, Josh. You can't survive by yourself in this race of faith. You can't run it alone. We need to get in each other's business, not as busybodies, but as loving brothers and sisters. Secondly, we have to see to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. This root of bitterness, it speaks of a person who is living in unrepentant sin. The preacher, he's, he's drawing on Deuteronomy chapter 29. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy, it's the second giving of the law to that second generation of Israelites as they're getting ready to head into the promised land. And in this section of Deuteronomy, Moses has been uh, telling people about the blessings that will come if they obey God and the curses that will come if they disobey God. And in 29, uh, Moses is speaking of the covenant that God is making with this people. And chapter 29, verse 18, gives the purpose for the giving of this covenant. Verse 18 says, So that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. That's where the preacher gets this idea of a bitter root. And this is a person. He says a man or woman or family or tribe. And what does this person, this kind of person, say? Verse 19, it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This person does not believe that there will be any consequences for their unrepentant sin. That verse goes on to say, in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. Kind of suggests that this person's sin is not just going to affect them. It poses a danger to the whole community. So the preacher in Hebrews 12, he's saying, see to it that there not be that kind of person dwelling in your midst. Because to have a person like this in the midst of a church is like allowing a gangrenous limb to remain on your body. The infection is only going to spread, threatening the health of the whole body. This is why our Lord prescribed the process of church discipline in Matthew 18. And church discipline in its early stages should be happening all the time among us. When we see a brother or sister sin, we go to them in private and we lovingly, 
gently talk with them about it and exhort them to repent. If they don't listen, what do you do? You take one or two with you, and then you go and you talk to that person again. If they still don't repent, what do you do? You tell it to the church, so the whole church can be encouraging this individual to repent. And if they still don't repent, it shows that their heart is stubborn. It is a bitter root. It's infectious, and they need to be treated as an unbeliever and put outside of the church. We see Paul dealing with a person like this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he's, he's rebuking these believers in Corinth because they're allowing this type of person to be in their midst. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So before it spreads to the whole church, the person needs to be put outside of the fellowship. And the goal of this discipline is the health of the church body. And the goal also, as you see in that passage, if you would read the whole thing, is also the restoration of that sinning member. So we need to see to it that we don't allow that kind of sin to take root in the church. But there's a third thing we are to see to, and we find this in verse 16 of Hebrews 12. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. The preacher, he speaks of two kinds of sins, immorality and godlessness. And these two sins, they almost seem to represent two classes of sin, two ends of the spectrum of sin. He says, uh, he mentions the word immoral. This word in the Greek is pornos. It refers to any kind of sexual activity that falls outside of the bounds of biblical marriage. And then he mentions the word godless. And this is described by uh, one commentator as being, quote, a character which recognizes nothing as higher than earth, for whom there is nothing sacred, no divine reverence for the unseen, unquote. This godlessness, it's a total lack of concern for, a trivializing of the things of God. And so you see these two kinds of sins, immorality, it's kind of a hot, passionate lust. And then godlessness, it's a cold indifference to the things of God. And both of these kinds of sins are pathways to apostasy. And then the preacher, he gives us an illustration of a person who embodied these two extremes of sin. He speaks of Esau. 
And Esau, he was a man of passion concerning his fleshly lust. But at the same time, he was a man of cold indifference to the things of God. The preacher, he speaks of him selling his birthright. He points us back to Genesis chapter 25. Turn there, Genesis 25, where we read of this account of Esau selling his birthright. Genesis 25, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Now verse 32, this is where we see the hot, lusty passion of Esau and the cold indifference of Esau all at the same time. Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. That seems a little extreme. But he knows what he wants, and he wants it now. This is not sexual lust, but it's, it's lust of the flesh. He wants what he wants, and he wants it now. It's a hot passion for this thing. But then what does he go on to say? So of what use, then, is the birthright to me? There, at the same time, in the same person, you see cold indifference to what's really important. Verse 33, And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way like nothing happened. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now we're going to be coming back to Genesis. You might want to keep your finger there. But I want to consider these two sins, immorality and godlessness, hot and cold. We have to be very watchful over our own hearts and over our church when it comes to these sins. Because these sins are often working in concert within a person. You usually find them together. They act almost like a tire wrench that you use to take lug nuts off to change a tire of a car. You know how a tire wrench works. You've got this metal cross, and at each of the four ends, there's a different size for different size lug nuts. And when you go to take a lug nut off a tire, you put the appropriate end over the lug nut. And what do you do? You push down on one side and you lift up with the other side. Because you could never get that lug nut off with just your bare fingers. And a lot of times, if you're just lifting up on one side of the wrench, you still can't get it off. It's not until, until you multiply the force by grabbing both ends and you push down on one end and you lift up on the other that then that lug nut breaks free. And it's the same kind of way with these sins. Where you have a hot passion for some kind of idol, some kind of thing that you really want, but that you know that God doesn't want you to have. You're passionate about it. You have a hot burning in your soul for this thing. But at the same time, your attitude toward God has become cold. 
You treat God like he's trivial. He's not important. It doesn't really matter what he says or what he thinks. So you have these two opposing forces wrenching on your heart. You have the sin of hot, passionate lust pulling up on your heart on one side, and then you have the sin of cold, indifferent godlessness pushing down on the other side. So it's only a matter of time before your biblical convictions break loose in your heart. If you're lusting after an idol and you're indifferent toward God, which one do you think you're going to end up following? The idol. Esau wanted so badly to satisfy his physical hunger. And he had so devalued what really mattered that he sold any claim he had upon the privileges and blessings of being the firstborn. He sold all of that for one lousy bowl of stew. And how does this apply to us? What can this world offer us that even begins to compare with spending an eternity with Christ in his kingdom? But anything that we choose over following Jesus is to sell our birthright as adopted children of the king of the universe for one lousy bowl of sinful stew. We need to understand that it doesn't matter how hard things get in this life. It doesn't matter if we're more famished than Esau was. It doesn't matter if we're enduring more persecution than these Hebrew believers were. It will never get to the point to where it's ever worth choosing, escaping that difficulty over following Christ. That's what Jesus said. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul. So we need to keep a careful watch over each other and over our own hearts so that we don't deceive ourselves into throwing it all away. This brings us to our third point, the consequences of not pursuing peace and holiness. What could happen if we don't do that? If we do not keep careful watch over each other's souls? What would happen if someone followed Esau's example? Well, to find that out, we only have to go back and consider what happened to Esau later. Go to Genesis 27. Genesis 27. We're going to be looking at verses 30 to 38. At this point, Isaac, he's already talked with Esau, said, Son, I'm going to bless you because I'm going to die soon. So go out, get me a meal. But Rebekah and Jacob, they overheard this conversation. And so Rebekah counsels Jacob that while Esau's gone, Jacob should get a meal for his father, and he should put some you know, uh, goat fur or lamb fur on his, the back of his neck and on his arms so that he can deceive his father Isaac into blessing him instead of Esau. So Jacob effectively carries out this plan. And then we come to verse 30. Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. 
Then he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? And he said, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me, so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, for he's supplanted me these two times? He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I have made him your master. And all his relatives I have given to him as servants, and with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. This is what the preacher is considering when he says what he says in verse 17. Speaking of Esau, he says, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau had placed himself in a position of which there was no way out. He had no opportunity to repent and regain what he had lost something he had lost due to his own passionate disregard for God. And we've seen something like this before in this letter to the Hebrews, haven't we? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Remember what the preacher says here, warning these believers? He says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Esau was the firstborn son, but he sold all the rights, the privileges, and the blessings that came with being the firstborn, he sold it for one bowl of stew. And you and I, we have been born again as sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says that our Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And to fully and finally turn away from following Jesus is to sell that birthright for something as worthless as a bowl of stew. There's no sacrifice that will cover that. We saw that in chapter 10, verse 26. 
If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And notice Esau had lost more than he knew when he sold his birthright. He walked away after he ate that bowl of stew like nothing had happened. He thought he made a good deal. That's how worthless he thought his birthright was to him. The currents of sin can so subtly cause us to drift past the point of no return without even realizing what we've given up until it's too late. Sin is deceitful. It promises you the world. And at the end, when you've traded everything for it, you find out that what, that what you've gotten is just some empty husk. That's what Adam and Eve discovered. And so the preacher, he warns us so that we are aware of the danger and can guard against it, looking out for one another. That's a strong warning. And again, I've, I've said this before, these warnings do not contradict the glorious promises that we find in the rest of the scriptures that as God's children, we are secure. There's nothing, no one, not even ourselves, that will rip us out of the grasp of our Father, that will enable, uh, cause us to lose our salvation. These warnings are not at odds with that. These warnings help ensure that. They put us on guard so that we have all of these things working to preserve us and to cause us to persevere. God's omnipotent hand upon us and by faith, us paying attention to what he's told us so that we don't desire to go anywhere close to that cliff of falling away. But all of the, all of the things we've looked at, this is why peace and holiness are not trivial pursuits. This is why we need each other. We are a very individualistic society. We don't like it when people get all up in our business. We typically have a very mind-your-own-business attitude. But that's not the life to which Jesus has called us. He is our Lord, and he calls the shots, and he commands us to come together as a church because he's designed the Christian life that way. Individualism is fatal in the Christian life. We persevere in faith together, not apart from one another. So let's, let's watch over each other as brothers and sisters because we love each other. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Again, I always say thank you for your word. I pray that I mean it, Lord. Help us truly to be thankful for your word that speaks to us of dangers and warns us against them so that we can stay far away from them. And we thank you for the many promises of your word that tells us that you have a firm grip on us, Lord. It's not so much us holding on to you, it's you holding on to us. You are ensuring our perseverance, Lord. We thank you that you will never let us go. We thank you that Jesus has said that he will lose not a single one of his people. But Lord, you've given us means you call us to exercise faith. You call us to hear your word and to obey. Lord, help us to be warned by this passage and help us to pursue peace and holiness and to do it together 
watching over one another. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.